I'm Dana Lloyd. Welcome to Soul Sister Conversations, the podcast, where you will be inspired and empowered to connect more deeply with your authentic self as we explore topics of personal development, leadership, and spirituality. Your journey to your most authentic self starts right now. Bill Randall has been immersed in story his entire life. He grew up the son of a pastor, his father being a natural storyteller. Bill, too, became a minister in the early part of his career, practicing what he now calls narrative care, listening to other people's stories. As a retired professor and gerontologist at St. Thomas University, Bill wants us to understand the power of our stories, especially as we age. Today, we chat about how our strength lies in our stories and how we can be better listeners. We talk about aging and spirituality, including how he reconciled religion with spirituality. Bill Randall, welcome to Soul Sister Conversations. Thank you very much. Well, I'm excited to dive into this topic today because we will be meandering in and out of some of my favorite topics, aging, spirituality, and narrative. And you are a retired gerontologist uh, from St. Thomas University. Uh, You have been developing an approach to aging along with some colleagues called Narrative Gerontology, which proposes that we are storytelling creatures. And consciously or otherwise, we are continually composing the story of our lives Uh, a complete text that aging nudges us to read. I find that an interesting way to look at it. But you have an interesting background. You grew up as a son of a pastor in rural New Brunswick, Harvey Station to be exact. Yes. And you've been educated at Harvard College, University of Toronto, uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. I mean, all sorts of education. But your first career was as a minister for 10 years with United Church, serving in all sorts of parishes, uh, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, and Ontario, before becoming uh, a gerontology professor. And you know, you say that the aging, spirituality, and narrative, they've haunted you most of your adult life. And I'm curious about what these ideas, why do they haunt you? Hmm. Well, I grew up, uh, as you say, in rural New Brunswick. And my father was a consummate uh, storyteller or raconteur. And, uh, you know, he could take the most innocuous everyday events and turn them into an entertaining story. And I think that's something that uh, here in the Atlantic provinces, maybe people of a certain generation are gifted to do, uh, you know, just storytelling is a, is a way of life. Uh, it is throughout the human community generally, but maybe especially so in certain regions. Anyway, so I grew up in a rural community where, as I like to say, uh, the narrative complexity of everyday life is in your face, uh, you know, because you, you know, everybody makes it their business to know everybody else's business uh, or they make up stuff and so forth. It's hard to get away from somebody's got a story of you, particularly when you're the minister's kid. Uh, right. You do sort of stand apart a little bit. Uh, all eyes are in some respects on you because you have to, you know, live up to a certain standard. Um, sure. But, um, and my father was also very influential because he was, uh, you know, from a young age himself, very interested in family genealogy. Um and uh, throughout his time as a minister in Harvey Station and other communities, he made it a, a strategy almost of his pastoral care to find out the stories of the older adults in that community, to, to piece together the fabric of how that community ticks. So the community has a story as well as the individuals within it. So all of that, I, that sort of a, a sensitivity to story or narrative, and I use those two words interchangeably, whether I should or not, Uh, all that sensitivity to narrative was with me from the get-go. And when I finally went on to uh, study theology theology myself in preparation for becoming a minister, I realized, this was in the mid-'70s, that there was something called narrative theology that was starting to to make an impact in certain corners of the theological world. So I went off to uh, university in England for one year to do uh, further graduate studies in narrative theology, but basically it was quite a complex field and just starting. So I decided, no, I need to get out into the, into the uh, pastoral care world and, you know, uh, do what I've trained for, which is be a minister. So for three years, I was in Saskatchewan, as you suggested, six years in uh, Fredericton, which is not a big city, but it was a big congregation and another year in uh, Toronto outside of, uh, or in the Toronto area. And a big part, Dana, of, that line of work, at least as I practiced it and experienced it, is listening to people's stories, not mm-hmm. as a counselor, not as a psychoanalyst, but just as a 
someone trying to get to know uh, his or her people. Uh, because, you know, when when uh, trouble gets uh, and you're called into a crisis situation, somebody's died and so forth, it's helpful if you know some of the background or some of the stories of that individual, of the family, and so forth. So throughout those 10 or 11 years of parish ministry, I lived and breathed uh, the, 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 the conviction that our stories are central, for better or for worse, to who we are and how we are in the world. Mm. Uh Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No. I'm. I'm just curious about. You know. I, and stories are powerful. I think you know that's how we originally connect. When years ago, when we'd be sitting around fires, and even we do it now. If you have a bonfire, people are telling stories or tall tales, or like you say, um, we're trying to find out about other people. And I'm curious how how narrative and storytelling is related to aging and spirituality. What role does it have to play? Well, I think. Uh... Aging is uh, a complex process. It's a physical process. Our bodies change. They break down on some level. Um, it's a physiological, it's a medical process. And in some respects, it becomes uh, a societal problem because the older adults tend to require uh, more physical care and so forth. And a lot of the emphasis in my field of gerontology is understandably placed on the, the biomedical dimensions of aging. But I've been interested, particularly because I've been at St. Thomas, which is a liberal, a liberal arts institution, along with my colleague, Gary Kenyon, and you, you know him and have interviewed him. Mm-hmm. I became interested in the biographical as opposed to, shall we say, the biological uh, complexity of the aging process. And it's, uh, it's an aspect of aging that has, has not been given a lot of attention. By, the bi- by biographical aging, I mean how it is that we age and change on the inside in terms of our, the stories uh, that we tell ourselves and others about who we are, what life is, um, what the world's all about, and so forth. And those stories are continually changing as we change. Um, uh, narrative gerontology relies a lot on insights from the subfield called narrative psychology, which starts with the premise that human beings are, are storytelling creatures, as you suggested already. And that the ways in which we make meaning uh, in our lives and meaning making is a huge part of what it means to be human in ways Mm. that it doesn't seem to be as big a part if you're a squirrel or a chickadee. But we don't know (laughs) squirrels or chickadees. But making meaning is a is a key aspect of the human condition. And one of the main ways in which we make meaning is by telling and retelling stories. You uh, mentioned earlier about, you know, when you're in when you're around the campfire, the natural natural default mode of conversation is to swap stories tall or otherwise about you know your day your life uh, the community uh people in your world and so forth so the storytelling impulse i would say and some neurologists are suggesting too is hardwired into our brains uh in ways that it may not be in for other other creatures mm. uh, as far as we know that that to be a human being from from you know infants well not infancy but as soon as we start to have a, an awareness of self uh, and a consciousness of self and so forth uh, and, a, and a capacity for language, uh, we learn the rudiments of storytelling. You know, tell me about what you did today, dear. Well, I went to the mm-hmm. went to the, the pool and I met my friends and then I came home and I had a sandwich, you know, and I played mm-hmm. with my puppy. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's that's, you know, and as we get older, as we get older, Potentially, the ways in which we story our world and the ways in which we story the events of our lives tends to change. Not radically. There, there. I like to think in terms of storying styles. We talk about learning styles, personality yeah. styles. I think you could argue that certain individuals have characteristic storying styles. Maybe you've got an uncle or a grandmother or whatever who, whenever he or she starts to talk about uh, something that's been going on in their lives, it comes out in a familiar a familiar way. Oh, yeah, that's the way that Grandpa or Uncle Joe tells stories. Um, but as we age, there is a natural tendency anyway, and this goes back to the psychology of aging, to look back, uh, mm. to, to want to have some kind of a review process over our lives. Uh, some of us resist that, but it is it does seem to be kind of um, uh, kind of an urge that wells up increasingly as we get older. Not for all people, but for, I would say, many or not, or maybe most. 
sure. review to review our lives. Now, the the the, eat, the need and the urge to review our lives. Life review is it's a, it's a backward looking reminiscence pr uh, process. It's a narrative process. Mm. Um, some people go to the extent of wanting to sit down and start to write out their story uh, so that it becomes clear to themselves. Uh, what kind of life they've had and who they are as a person, but also something that they can pass on to their children and grandchildren as a record of this is the this is the person that your aunt or grandmother Dana really was, you know. Mm. Um, so that 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 urge to tell one story, I I think does tend to increase. At least the sad part is that for many of the very elderly living in institutions who have nobody else left around, have nobody left to tell their story to. Right. Except the staff who are very, very busy people, good hearted people, but often don't have the time to sit. I need to tell you a little bit about my own mother. Uh, she is going to be 101. In, oh, my gosh. In exactly, Amazing. In exactly two months, November the 7th. And uh, she is very alert. Thank God doesn't have any kind of dementia. That, that's that's obvious. Lives in a, a special care facility, um, but um, is very alert. Uh, and active uh, mentally and cognitively. She makes about 25 to 30 phone calls every evening after she gets into bed uh, to keep in touch with various people in different corners of her life going back into the past. Not to complain about her lot as a very elderly person, but as um, someone who cares about other people. So, you know, did you get the results back from your doctor yet? Is Mary going to get home for the holidays? And she ends her conversations with, I love you very much. Now, she stands out, I think, is kind of unique because, unfortunately, a lot of older adults, particularly, of course, with the onset of, of dementia, yeah. lose that opportunity, A, to tell their stories, uh, which is a way of kind of reminding themselves as to who they are and what their life has been about, but also, B, to have that story listened to uh, in an open, uh, caring, and compassionate way. So a lot of people... Mm -hmm. Uh, re, uh, suffer from what I would call narrative atrophy. I've made up a bunch of terms. Yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, atrophy, you know, our muscles atrophy and so forth. But our stories can sort of dry up inside of us if nobody ever asks us to, to, uh, to say a little bit about ourselves to them. Yeah. When I was doing a little bit of research um, for you, and I was watching a video on on your website, and it, you you were saying that when and you had heard this uh, quote before that when an older person dies, it's like a library burned down, Ooh. and it burns down. And I think that's a very uh, amazing image to think about the wealth of information that each of us carries, that each of us does ha does have a story. And you wrote a book called "In Our Stories Lies Our Strength," which yeah. I love the name of that. Um, because what do you mean by that? Our, in our stories lies our strength. Good question. It's a phrase that I was charmed by before I, you know, uh, decided I needed to define what I meant by it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, uh, in the background to that little book, and thanks for mentioning it, uh, is some research that I've done with some colleagues uh, on the concept of narrative resilience. Uh, and the idea being that, you know, uh, older adults who suffer lots of losses, physical, interpersonal, etc., uh, if they can maintain a fairly thick, rich, uh, multi-layered, strong story about their lives, then that can, I think, contribute to, and some have argued this uh, from a medical perspective, an improved immune system, a mm. uh, better sense of self-esteem, a better sense of personal agency at a time in their lives when they're having to rely on other people more and more to help them with this, that, and the other. So there is, I think, I think it's possible to, to strengthen our stories. When I say that in our stories lies our strength, oftentimes we put ourselves down. Uh, mm. We don't realize uh, or we're not encouraged to consider by others around us just how much we've gone through. Uh, how many experiences yeah. we've had, good, bad, and ugly, how many um, lessons we've learned uh, by hook or by crook, uh, how, how much stuff there is stored away underneath there. And when, we, when we're asked to tell people, you know, a little bit about our story, we oftentimes default to uh, stories from our lives that have, that, have, uh, that have passed the test of social acceptability. You know, oh, well, I was born at a very young age and I grew up on the farm, blah, blah, blah. 
certain signature stories, if you will, that we can hear ourselves trotting out uh, quite frequently across across the years to kind of give people a sense of who we are and what our values are and so forth. But I think there's there's stories behind stories behind stories behind stories. Not all of them, by any means, easy to tell uh, oh. or easy to own up to, uh, which is why we always need therapists and counselors and listeners to help us go deeper into our stories. But I think one of the things you could argue that therapists and, and uh, counselors help us to do is to strengthen our sense of self-esteem and our sense of personal agency by helping us to get in touch with how interesting our stories really are. Because mm. m- when you say a good, strong story, are, are you saying we should look at ourselves in a positive light? Because so often when people tell stories, like you say, there might be some things in their past that they're not proud of or that they um, are ashamed of or don't want to mention. But it's all part of your story. And there's so much learning and context and wisdom that you can pass on. But it, when we have a good, strong story, is that when we... we we own up to and we share, we're being vulnerable about our lives, that that can actually help us to lead healthier, longer, age well? I, I think so, yes. That's my gut yeah. sense. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and I'm not a medical doctor myself, uh, but I do draw in my own reading and research from uh, from people in the therapeutic world and in the field of narrative medicine. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of uh, a, a subfield of medicine called narrative medicine, uh, no. which uh, it was started by uh, a woman named Rita Sharon uh, at Columbia University in New York. Uh, she has uh, she's a medical doctor, but she's also has a PhD in English literature. And in her teaching uh, medical students, she began to realize that we need to sensitize medical students to the narrative or the biographical complexity of our patients and not just their medical symptoms and problems. Otherwise, we're missing a whole big chunk of who our patients are and uh, mm. missing opportunities to connect more soulfully with them. So the narrative medicine program uh, developed at Columbia, and there has been a form of it that's uh, uh, been in operation at Dalhousie University Medical School. Um, and so, so, in fact, when I mentioned earlier that some have argued that um, getting in touch with our stories, uh, even the difficult ones, can actually improve our health. There was a guy named James Pennebaker from the University of Texas who, uh, you know, asked students as part of a research project to write in their journals about, you know, a particularly difficult or traumatic experience in their lives. Um, and I'm not, I don't have the exact details of how the research project was constructed, but the conclusion was that those who uh, wrote about difficult, painful aspects of their stories, but wrote them out, kind of got them out, got their stories out, shall we say, and onto the Mm -hmm. page where they could have a little bit of a distance from them and relationship with their stories and not be sort of imprisoned by them, Um, that they did show, uh, you know, a number of improved health uh, uh, aspects on different measures, including their their immune system, how they measure. Oh, I believe that. I believe that. You know, I think, don't you think that too often we keep our stories uh, tucked way down deep, especially the ones that um, that shame us or that we have some darkness about. That, but but when we put some light on it, we crack open in some way. That's nice, nicely put. We crack them open. Uh, we mm. crack them open, and we see that uh, that horrible, shameful uh, event or experience that we lived through or were part of or whatever. Uh, it's not the whole story of who we are. No, uh, and no. that opening up. I mean, that's what we do when we go talk to a counselor. We, we presumably open up. And that that quality of narrative openness, which mm. is a term that some of us are using, is, I think, part of the recipe for for uh, growth or growing old as opposed to simply getting old. Um, yeah. And we, so that's why a number of us, and this is what comes out in that little book in our stories, Lines of Strength, a number of us are saying we need, we need to encourage uh, people, younger people, for example, uh, to become good listeners. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. To listen not just uh, for the facts, ma'am, but for the things between the lines, for the for the other other interpretations that might be in the back of the teller's mind of a particular uh, important event. Uh, mm-hmm. no, nothing, in other words, from a narrative perspective, nothing set in stone. Right. Uh, in term, terms of who we are. Our stories can always change. And I think that's one of the things that I'm discovering uh, as I get older 
in in that little book, I make reference to my iron lung story, mm-hmm. uh, and where for two two weeks at the age of two, I had polio, as is the case, as did my two sisters, and I was consigned to an iron lung to help with my breathing. Only problem is the story isn't true. I found out forty years after the fact. I never was in an iron lung, according to my parents. I was in an oxygen tent, which is not nearly as sexy as, a, as an iron lung. <laughs> and so your narrative changed yeah. on you. They, they, they took, you were carrying around the iron lung story. But you know what? I realized as I stepped back from that iron lung story, once I had to accept that it wasn't quite true, that it had it had held it had provided me with some sort of inner sense of strength, shall we say. That I was the kid, two years of age, who toughed it out all by himself in St. John Hospital in that iron lung. You know, I'm a little hero yeah. in my own in my own mind, so to speak. Now I can look back on that story, knowing that it isn't quite true, and uh, it makes me think. Well, what's behind that story? Why have I always told that story? What value has it had for me when I've told it? Um, what kind of reaction did I look for or want from my audiences? And how um, how what was behind that story in terms of other things that were going on in the family? So here I am, 70, 71, and I'm going back to some of my tried and true signature stories and realizing that there's more to them. Mm. Uh, you know, when you when you take a course uh, in English literature at college or university, this is one of the things that the prof gets you to do is to go deeper, a closer reading, uh, to get a fuller sense of what particular episodes or chapters are about the layers of meaning and significance that might be happening within them. And I think Mm -hmm. something like that is why my colleague Elizabeth McKim and I wrote a book called Reading Our Lives, The Poetics of Growing Old. Um, And we may have overstated the the value and the need for older adults to do story work uh, because in very, very late life, you know, when you're in your 90s or whatever, um, that sort of overarching review of your life is not necessarily something you have the energy to do or then maybe the need to do Hmm. but as as a recently retired person i really feel that i've just sold my house of 23 years last summer moved into an apartment and i have all these containers of letters that i sent home to my parents and that my parents faithfully kept from when i was in college way back in the 60s and my i had this great appetite this great desire to spread those all out, to reread them, put them in chronological order, and and reacquaint myself with what was going on in those uh, very powerful four years uh, that otherwise, in my mind right now, it's oh, four years of college, boom, you know, it's just a kind of a blip. Right. But there's always more to it, isn't there? How amazing is that, that your parents had all those, and that you could rediscover yourself in a new way? Wow, like you truly were, you, you do have a library. I do have a library. <laughs> you have a record of your life. I do. Yeah. No, no. And your feelings and your thoughts about it. You know, when we write in letters, we tend to maybe be a little bit more um, emotional or to say how we're feeling versus just like a journal record. In my case, these letters are more about the events of my life, you know, who I hung out with and when I went for supper and how much I got to mm. pay for my tuition. Whereas I have, though, I also kept journals, and I have all those as well. Okay. And the, jur- wow. the journals are more a record, by far, of my thoughts and feelings. Okay. And I, in fact, I, when I reread my journals, I have scarcely I, any idea what was going on on the outside of my life, because the journal entries are all about the inner stuff, which wasn't always pleasant to read, hasn't always been pleasant to reread, because there were parts in my past where, uh, you know, I was disturbed and distressed by stuff and so forth that I'm not disturbed and distressed by now because I'm an older person. I've, I've grown out of that self that I was back then, but that's the world that I was living in then. So reacquainting yourself with the self you were in the past, either through photographs, a letters home, journal entries, um, is, a, is a journey. It's an adventure. Mm. And adventures of any kind are always fraught with possible dangers and risks. Yeah. I like that, that you, you know, you can see yourself when you go back through your journals and letters and you say, I grew out of that person, that you could literally see the transformor- transformation of yourself, like sh- like a snake shedding its skin and leaving that person behind. But having that opportunity to go back and revisit with that person, I mean, so many lessons, I can only imagine what you're thinking as you're reviewing it. I mean, it's pretty powerful. It is powerful. And those, those persons and those selves that I was, they're still in there. They're still inside mm-hmm. of me. Uh, it's like, uh, you know, the chambered Nautilus, uh, you know, the image of the chambered Nautilus, the, 
the sea creature that uh, you know uh, starts out small, has a shell, and then outgrows that shell, yes. but hangs on to it. You know, and it mm-hmm. has a spiral sort of uh, look to it. With each chain previous chamber that that encased its its uh, itself is is left behind, but it's still there. Uh, and I sometimes feel that that's a that's a good image for how we we're like China. Uh, what the, is it? The Russian dolls, you know? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, One within the other, or yeah. You know. the, so the two year old in the iron lung is still inside me somewhere. The the eighteen year old at university is still inside me there somewhere. Uh, the uh, the professor in the midst of his career at age fifty is still inside me somewhere. But I'm I'm all of those people and more. You know, mm. uh, and so what does knowing that say, for example, that story of you, you were always told that you were that two year old who were toughing out in the iron lung and you found out, ah, that wasn't quite true. And that was a story that that was part of you. How does that impact you now knowing that that story um, changed? Like, how does it help you or hurt you or does it help you learn something about yourself? One of the things that helps it's helped me to learn about myself is. It's helped me to understand why it is I'm interested in stories. I mean, I built my my career uh, on exploring and thinking about and writing about the story complexity of life. If that story had turned out to be true as I'd always thought it was, then I wouldn't have I wouldn't have stepped back from it, critiqued it, and said, "Well, why did I come up with that story? You know, what what sort of combination of imagination and memory and peer pressure or whatever ever led me in the first place to think that my goodness, I was in an iron lung." Obviously, you've made your life out of studying story. Well, I'll give you a little, a little, little example. Um, um, with a couple of colleagues, I'm just putting the finishing touches on a book that's coming out September 30th, uh, with any luck, uh, called Fairy Tale Wisdom, Stories for the Second Half of Life. Uh, your listeners might be interested in that. But what we did in that book, all of the three of us, myself, Andy, and Barbara, we're all uh, 70-year-olds, we took a bunch of stories fables, fairy tales that we remember as kids, uh, we remember remembered as kids, and revisited them, you know, 60 plus years later. So the first, the second chapter in the book, we all take a crack at the tortoise and the hare, you know, familiar old mm. fable from Ace. Yes. What does that story say to Barbara, now that she's in her 70s, to Andy, to Bill, to me? And one of the things I realize is that when I think about the tortoise and the hare, it immediately triggers my memory of the iron lung story. Uh, you know what I mean? A tortoise retreats inside its shell uh, at the first sign of danger, right? Um, mm. That's how it preserves itself from, da- from danger. Well, maybe on some level, my iron lung was my tortoise shell, you know? Mm. I mean, I, this, this is something I'll be thinking about and journaling about for some time, and I'm not deeply troubled by this. I'm just kind of uh, amused. Curious. Curious, yes, that's the yeah. word. Uh, in what sense have has uh, the iron lung story kind of paralleled my identification with the tortoise? I also see some of the hair in myself. Okay, uh, the, the 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 creature who gets overconfident sometimes, jumps around, thinks he's going to win the race, and ends up falling asleep and losing the race. You know, um, I've had a few harebrained ideas uh, across the across the years of my life and so forth. So playing with these stories against the background of our own collection of stories, in my case, the Iron Lung story, plus others, um, it's like we use the fairy tales and the fables as mirrors to think about and to go deeper into the the complexity of our own lives. Not to to wallow in our own lives, but in a sense to to value and appreciate just how interesting we really are and how how Mm. even if we've led a fairly normal life on the surface, whatever normal means, is usually for most human beings all kinds of stuff going on, but behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I always tell people that as, as I'm a coach, is that we're using people's lives as context. Like if there's so much richness in people's past, and I think a lot of people might think their life is ordinary uh, because they mightn't have done something, you know, great, been an Elon Musk or something like that. But we are all have such greatness in our own lives that if we can uh, kind of mine the gold from those stories, that we have so much richness, so much we can learn about ourselves. And I think people tend to be too hard on themselves. And and there's just so much richness that's locked in those stories that could help them uh, with their future, you know, so yes, help them with I, their future and help them to open out like a flower 
uh, and and have a, a deepened sense, an enriched sense of self-esteem. Uh, mm. My God, I really am an interesting person. I mean, we've we've yes. uh, we've interviewed older adults. We had a, a study called the eighty plus study for a few years in Fredericton, out of St. Thomas, and we interviewed a certain a selection of the participants about the stories of their lives. And our very first question was, so tell me about your life. <laughs> Oftentimes, you know, the response is, well, I don't know, I'm not really much to tell you. I mean, I grew up on a farm and 13 brothers and sisters, and uh, I went off and went to work in the woods and married my, my, uh, my, uh, my wife, and we had three kids, and uh, here I am. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just touch the top yes. of it. And so, so then the interviewer, if he or she is smart, says, "Well, that's great. Now, can you say a bit more about growing up on the farm? You know, thirteen them, thirteen brothers. That must have been pretty interesting." Well, you know, it was. And then usually the the the, the interviewee, uh, if they feel that you know it's a safe environment, they say, "Well, yeah, there was a time when," and they start trotting out some of their stories, and pretty soon. Sure. They've fleshed out this otherwise very brief uh, precy that they trotted out in the first two minutes. They fleshed that out into a whole fascinating story uh, with multiple layers and subplots and characters and themes running through it. Uh, and by the end of the interview, oftentimes it was our experience that the person was was energized. You would think yes. that after three or four hours, they'd be just totally tired. You know, sometimes they were. Yeah. But oftentimes, and this was my experience as a pastoral minister visiting uh, older adults in their homes, you know, doing making house calls, is that what would start off as kind of a, well, I'm not sure I'm going to make it through this afternoon visit because I'm kind of tired myself. And the the woman or man I was visiting would go out into the kitchen to get some cookies and some tea. They'd come back in. That would have given me time to see some pictures on the wall. And they come back and I said, I saw that picture. It looks like, is that you and your husband? Yo, yeah, that's my dear Fred. That's, uh, we had our honeymoon in Niagara Falls. Yeah. And well, tell me about that. And before you know it, the stories start to come. By the end of the conversation, uh, they're standing at the door saying, thank you so much. And you, I, haven't really done anything at all except be curious. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, because you mentioned in your book, too, we're talking about, you know, getting in touch with their lives. And I think for many older people, and you talked about it earlier in in their conversation about when people are in long-term care homes, for example, I think you had said in your book that maybe six minutes a day people get with their caretakers. And most of that time is taken up with doing the tasks of taking care of somebody. And uh, we'll get into a little bit uh, in terms of how can we can be better listeners. But I think it's really important that how do we get people to talk about their lives as they're when they're older and how that gets them in touch with who they are? Because you recall a story where you were saying that you're visiting your father in the retirement home and you would always engage him with stories from his life. And he liked telling his signature stories, you said. But but what struck me about this description is that you said, I know these would invigorate his sense of identity mm. and get him feeling positive about himself again. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that's what our, that people's stories have the power to do is get them to back in touch with them. Like, I'm not just somebody who's now maybe immobilized or suffering some sort of um, disease that I, I actually had a life and I have a story if you're interested in it. So yeah. I thought that was a great way to, to help people get in touch with their lives, not forget who they are. Yes. And you've captured it perfectly the essence of what I broadly call narrative care, uh, which, mm -hmm. is, which is not rocket science. It doesn't require a degree in psychotherapy uh, or in psychiatry, although that can help for sure. But uh, it just, it just means being able to appreciate that that older person sitting immobilized in their wheelchair, uh, stuck in a corner, staring, you know, uh, uninterestedly at the TV screen, because that's what everybody else is watching, that there's a, there's a world inside that, that head and heart of theirs. Uh, and if they still have the power to communicate and listen, I'll give you a little quick story. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, maybe I mentioned it in the book. I don't know about my, my father, when he was in his eighties, he and mother were living in a, senior friendly apartment building in, in Fredericton here. And he always liked to kind of plan ahead. So he said, Bill, could you arrange for your mother and, and me to have a, a, a tour of, of one of the local nursing homes that you're in, that you're connected to? And I said, sure. So my friend Ken was the executive director of a large nursing home with, where they'd just done some wonderful renovations. So my mom and dad, my dad with his cane, my mother kind of walking behind, not too, 
excited because she just she wasn't quite ready to think about moving into a nursing home. But dad was trying to be realistic. Anyway, as we were walking along and my friend Ken was saying that we have this wonderful section over here and there's a lovely everybody has their own privacy here and there's a room for people to, to meet. Dad saw this elderly woman sitting as you just described, kind of slunched over, hunched over in her wheelchair, staring at the wall. You know, mm-hmm. uh, probably not the sort of uh, person that uh, that my friend would have wanted to have there for this particular because he was trying to sell mom and dad on the idea of coming to the. <laughs> but my dad, from his years of being a pastoral minister himself, saw the name of the person on her on her uh, on the back of her wheelchair and kind of bent over again. He's leaning on a cane himself and said, how are you today? Good, she said, kind of looking up. Uh, and I see you're so-and-so. Would you happen to be from uh, up around Stanley, which is a local uh, community on the outskirts of Frederick? And she said, well, yes, I am. You know? And before you know it, she was starting, the color was coming back into her face, mm-hmm. and he was connecting with her because you know he was saying, well, would you know so-and-so? Oh, yes, those are my neighbors. Uh, and so in that very, very brief little exchange, he kind of epitomized, in my view, what narrative carries is connecting with the person who has a story, who comes from somewhere, who has a family, who has neighbors, who has a past, and tapping into that, which isn't rocket science, can can enliven an encounter in often very healthy, healing ways. Mm. And it, it's interesting that you say the color came back into her face. It, there is there's sort of our life force that's in there that can be reinvigorated, I think, through connection. And I think of anything we've learned through the pandemic is that 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 importance of connection and how much it we we need it and want it. And uh, can you imagine people who are who are in care homes that also equally uh, need that who don't have as maybe. Uh, as many, I always say, like the characters in their lives. Some people in nursing homes are have outlived a lot of yes. friends and family. I know my grandmother just turned ninety one, and she's in a long term care home. And I see a lot of that in, in in that home. And actually, in preparation for this podcast, I I was visiting with her last week for her birthday, and I asked her about her life, thinking, okay. You know, these are the things I mean to get around to. And I asked her about one of the, um, you know, the highlights of her 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 childhood. And she immediately, you know, said when we used to visit her grandparents and they had an apple orchard, we'd run through the apple orchard. And, you know, and I hadn't heard her talk about that before. And then I asked her about her parents and what they were like. And she said things that were surprising, (laughs) things that I didn't know. And it's so interesting to, to actually have that conversation with them. But sometimes when I talk about, I love connecting with people, but sometimes people say, well, you know, maybe it's being nosy. And I'm like, well, I don't see it as nosy. I see it as connection. I'm not collecting the information for myself. Or that's why reason why people don't ask other people about their lives because they don't want to be nosy. Um, But I think it's about connection. I I agree with you. And your your whole podcast series is about connection and deepening connections Mm, and expanding connections. But but when we when we. When you, you know, found out more about your grandmother, your grandmother, you say? Yes. When mm-hmm. you found out more about her that you hadn't known, it was surprising in a nice way for you. So at the same time as she's probably being energized by having you genuinely listening to her, you're energized by having a, a, a new, a fresh and broadened take on who your grandmother is as a person. Uh, Absolutely. And yeah. I mean, sometimes I think we, we run the risk of what I call stereotyping older people. You know, we have uh, we, we see them sitting in their chairs often off to one side and we think, oh, there's just another old person. And we just lump them in that sort of one category without realizing that each older person uh, is incredibly unique from a narrative perspective. In fact, as we get older, I would argue we become more unique, not more similar. Uh, we may look we may look similar in terms of hair color and stoop of posture and so forth. Uh, and that and that way maybe sometimes be written off by younger people. Oh, there's a bunch of old folks over there. But on in on the inside, I do think that we actually we become more novel to use that sort of more unique yeah. from a story perspective. Yeah. Because well, it was certainly very interesting for me to learn about my grandmother. So you're exactly right. I think you know it energizes her and it stimulates her mind to talk about things. She has to remember. She has to go back into her yes. her memory bank. And I leave knowing something interesting. And sometimes even the way she said something made me laugh uh, to realize she has a sense of humor about something or you, you learn about family dynamics, things that you would not normally have learned about as a child. Yes. You know, so yes. very interesting. Because you wouldn't have asked or, you know, older adults didn't feel that it was their place to, 
to uh, to uh, to tell you too much information when you do well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> But when she's 91 and outlived everybody, now you can tell the good. Now you can tell the whole story. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing to lose. Nothing to lose and everything to gain. Yeah. And it also so, it levels the playing field between you and your grandmother age-wise because it's no longer yeah. this 91-year-old woman and you, however old you are. It's two people having a conversation and having a talk. Yeah. It, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I realized I'm going to do more of that and try to ask her more questions about things. Uh, and it's making me think about when I go in to visit her, all the, the what you describe people in wheelchairs, I normally smile to them, uh, smile at them, but I don't actually stop and say hello, because I'm thinking that they can't. Yeah. Or they, you know, so that I, that's kind of made me think differently, having this conversation about what I'm going to do next time, how I can be more uh, helpful in that setting. So let, let's talk about the craft of what you call story listening. Like, how do we be better listeners? And I mean, you gave a great example of your dad yeah. just going over and say hello and, yeah. you know, not being afraid of that connection. What else can we do to listen well to people, especially older people? Just before I respond to that, I want to say, though, that, uh, you know, I've worked with a lot of nursing homes and and uh, such institutions over the years, and particularly in our region, and I'm very impressed with the the uh, the degree to which uh, the activities directors and the staff mm -hmm. are very open to and see the importance of narrative care. Uh, yeah. It's just a question sometimes of them trying to find time and space to build it into their very busy schedules. That statistic that I uh, mentioned about the six-minute nursing home. I'm not quite sure where those statistics... I, I think I read somewhere about uh, a study that had, had shown that the average nursing home in certain, uh, you know, a certain area, maybe let's say the United States or some other country, not our own, <laughs> uh, you know, doesn't get that very much per day of human-to-human uh, of -human contact, apart from task-oriented stuff. But I think we're, we're doing a much better job uh, in many of our nursing homes here in the Maritimes, because we are a naturally storytelling cu culture, and it's no good. I think so. No yeah. good leap for a staff person to say, who, who might know Mary, Mrs. Smith, is actually their grandmother's mother, twice removed on their father's side. You know, <laughs> that's the way we are. It's very likely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's easier to have those. Hello, how are you doing today? Uh, so, uh, how to be a good listener of older adults? Um, well, this is a topic that that I've talked about a lot or discussed a lot with students, gerontology students at the university, most of whom are in their early 20s, okay? Yeah. Uh, and they are wondering, well, how can I possibly be a good listener to an older adult who's had 80 years of life experience on me? And the uh, um, uh, first thing I say is, well, um, <laughs> uh, say hello <laughs> and have an expression on your face and your posture that indicates that you're really interested you know tell me a little bit about yourself mr jones or or mrs can or whatever the name might be um and and uh don't feel the need to jump in every two sentences and say well that's just like my grandmother and then take off in your own direction because i think that's what we sometimes or often mm -hmm. do in ordinary conversation yes. we think we're going to listen nicely to the person we're talking with but as soon as that person says something that we can connect with we start going down our path and uh, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of somebody coming up to you and say, hey, Dana, how have you been? Tell me about yourself. And you start to say, well, I'm doing this podcast series. And they say, oh, that's just like me. And then half an hour later, you haven't sort of said a boo and they're still going on. And they say, oh, but no, that's enough about me. What about you? <laughs> and by this, yeah. time you're thinking, this time you're thinking, well, I'm not sure I really want to bother because you're not really listening anyway. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's true. But anyway, yeah. uh, so, so. Uh, and body language is obviously important, but asking yeah. open-ended questions, uh, not sort of, uh, you know, how old are you and where did you grow up? Although those are sometimes appropriate, but um, what do you think of when you, uh, when you, uh, when you see this pic? Some, some of the strategies that have been developed for interacting narratively with older adults are quite ingenious and yet also very simple too. Um, I've got a box up in my cupboard here with just a bunch of little photographs uh, of humorous situations, kind of either black and white or whatever, and a question on the other side. And, you know, you show the picture to somebody and flip it over, and, and the question says, well, you know, what does this make you think of? Sometimes it's just little triggers that will, that will open up a window into that person's story world. Uh, you don't have to sort of sit down and say, tell me the story of your life, Mrs. Smith, in chronological order. <laughs> mm -hmm. that's, pretty, yeah. that's pretty daunting. Uh, uh, so um, 
I'm not helping. They're like, it's just there's so many different. I call them avenues of entry into pe- people's yeah. worlds. Well, even paying attention, I think you mentioned in your book, like you know, noticing what books they might have around or what kind of music might they listen yes. to. Like it's all, all sorts of points that we can jump off and and tells us something about people yeah. that we can connect with them on. But you, as the person who's going to be the listener actually has to be interested you know so yeah it's, uh, you have to be interested and sometimes it's it's not easy to be interested in people who you would on the surface say well they're just a boring person uh right we don't know that yeah it's know. so true I, or we're afraid to connect or yeah. who knows i you know i think sometimes people are afraid of connection like I, I, I say the word shy, but maybe they're just not good at it themselves at connecting. But I see it as so important, especially for, um, you know, older generation as um, people, you know, the characters of their life fall away. Because yeah. there's a term that you call a narrative loss. Yeah. When people from our story um, fall away. And it's funny because I refer to my my own life as characters. I'm like, the characters are falling away. Mm. And the stories and the people that knew you or you had connection with, I you can no longer reminisce with or connect with in that yeah. way because they're gone. Yes. I'm- and um, yeah, that, so there is a great sense of loss or a piece of our story is gone gone with those people. That's true. It's like, a, yeah, yeah a, but which may mean it can be all the more important to, to talk with somebody who doesn't necessarily know those people whom you've lost, but can say, well, tell me about, tell me about some of the times you, you had with your cousin Lizzie, you know, oh, well, mm. you know, and so you, 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 in a sense, by asking that kind of question, even though you don't know and have never met Lizzie yourself, you kind of revive, revitalize uh, Lizzie in, I'm just using that as a name, in, yeah. in, in your, in the older person's mind and gets them talking and reliving that connection. And uh, I had a little game I used to play with my dad and I have other games I play with my mom to stimulate her memory too. Uh, But dad and I would go for drives. Uh, I, uh, you may recall that book Tuesdays with Maury. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I started to write something which will never probably see the light of day called Saturdays with dad. And uh, uh, in his eighties and early nineties, we would go for a little drive on Saturday afternoons if possible. And it was me wanting to get him out of the apartment and, uh, you know, and you know, just get him out to see the sunlight and the countryside and so forth. But one day we were driving along down the St. John River, and I said, Dad, I want to play a little memory game with you. And he was always very keen to activate his memory and have his memory activated by any kind of a question or or, uh, or trigger or whatever. So I said, I'm going to name, I'm just going to throw out a word to you and let you kind of free associate. It's kind of like what a psychoanalyst might do, you might, you might say. Anyway, we were dri- going along somewhere now near Gagetown, and there was a sailboat down there in the middle of the St. John River. So I said, sailboat. Well, that got him on a, lo- a line of reminiscing, was kind of meandering, as reminiscences tend to be, uh, about how he never really had a sailboat himself, uh, but he made a sailboat to, uh, to use in the wintertime on the lake in the frozen, uh, you know, an ice sailboat, shall we say. Mm. So he told me about that, which I I hadn't really heard before, and I was quite impressed with how at the age of 15 or 16, he figured out how, how to put together some skis with some skates on them and a sail and rig it up so that he could kind of, you know, use uh, ropes and so forth to go with the wind. And then that led him to, to talking about some girlfriend that he had and they went sailing or whatever. Um, and by the time that the afternoon was over, we had just had one word to kind of set things going. So mm, that's uh, a pretty good exercise. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and uh, I might try it with myself because <laughs> there's things you forget, right? It's kind of a neat little game to play. What comes up when you mention this sort of word to um, to bring up stories and or mention yeah, a, mention are- a random first person name like Mary or Bob, you know. Uh, that, yeah. that could open up all a lot of potentially embarrassing stories, but but it's just yeah. it's just avenues. I call them avenues of entry into the complex, yeah. multi-layered story world that each of us is. Mm. Yeah. You know, a- aging tends to have a negative connotation. How do you view aging now as a 70, 71 year old? Uh, I view it fundamentally as an adventure. Uh, and I say that because that's the project I'm currently sort of making notes on. I'm not sure if it'll ever see the light of day, 
but aging as adventure, restoring later life. And I say that because I think that in the media and even sometimes in the field of gerontology, aging is portrayed as a downward sort of process, mm-hmm. uh, which it can be physically and in other ways too. Uh, you know, our lives narrow in, people fall away, people die, you know, uh, we can't see as well, hear as well, etc. All of that is real. And those are declines that are not fun, usually. Uh, but I like to think that aging is a way of growing old, and not just getting old. Now, that just may be me as an academic talking. But, you know, I, there was a book by a Catholic uh, priest named uh, Henry Nouwen, uh called Aging. The fulfillment of life and in it he talks about aging as a way to the darkness or as a way to the light uh, of course he's keeping in the spiritual component in a nice gentle way uh, and I've, I've 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 been trying to articulate lately that aging is a new phase of life it's different uh, it has its challenges for sure uh, as does each stage of life um, but it opens up possibilities that maybe couldn't be opened up when we were in our, you know, first 10 years, second 10 years, whatever. And I look at aging as an adventure in four and possibly more sort of ways. Aging is an, potentially an adventure outward. You retire and, and as your health is still pretty good, you take up some new hobbies You or you reconnect with interests and talents that you had put to one side when you were raising your children and so forth. Or you go on trips that you've always wanted to go on, or at least can go on, now that COVID is, seems to be uh, waning a little bit. So you open up new vistas uh, and potentially maybe make new friends. If you sell your house of however many years and move to a senior-friendly apartment building, there's the potential, if you're open, to new friends. Uh, mm-hmm. And new friends bring out new sides of yourself. So that adventure outward, which has many different dimensions to it, I think is a, po- a possibility. The adventure inward, though, as well. And we've kind of been talking about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the longest journey, says Dag Hammarskjöld, is the journey inward. Um, and I don't think we're very skilled as a Western society in knowing how to undertake that journey inward. That is a spiritual journey. Um, it but it's tied to the outward aspects. Uh, you know, if you take up an, if you take up the violin at age seventy. Uh, and you start to play some pieces that you hardly had even heard of when you were younger, and you realize that, oh, those pieces by Mozart or Bach, they really kind of stir my soul. They take me to a different place within myself. That could be, uh, you know, an invitation into that adventure inward, journal-keeping an adventure inward uh, uh, avenue. Then there's the adventure backward, which we've been talking about too, going back into the past, not to live in the past or dwell on the past or be trapped by the past, but to discover things in the past. Adventures are about discovery. Uh, Adventures also have dangers. I mean, you may go back and reread some of those letters and say, oh my God, I'd forgotten about that awful period of my life. But maybe that's part of the process of life review is to to own up to and to face up to and to drill down into and come out the other side of some of the difficult things that otherwise you've pushed in the corner or needed to push in the corner. Uh, uh, Then the adventure forward is another aspect that, that I like to talk about, um, and this is maybe my own sort of theological biases coming out here, but I do tend to think of, of life as a journey that's going somewhere. And uh, uh, maybe death is as much a birth as it is anything else. Mm. And these are not just theologians who say these kinds of things or suggest these kinds of things. It's uh, poets and so forth. I mean, there was a woman named Florida Scott Maxwell that I like to quote. She wrote a journal in her 80s. Um, and uh, in one place, she says, uh, uh, if maybe life is a pregnancy, uh, and that would make death <laughs> a birth. And I find it's myself true. really intrigued by it. if, for example, these 70, 80, 90, 100 years that we have in this in this mode on this planet is just part of a larger journey, then aging is about is about uh, getting ready for the bigger journey, maybe. I know that sounds mm. kind of spooky and weird, and some of your listeners will turn off maybe when they hear that, but I, I do nah, think... Nah, not to this crowd. No. <laughs> so let's talk about that a little bit, that adventure inward. I'm curious about your life as a spiritual person, because you say that now that maybe perhaps you're shifting away from your intellectual energies to questions that eventually sort of haunt us all about why are we here? You know, you say the older you get, the more curious you become. Have you come to any conclusions about why we are here? 
I am coming to some conclusions. I won't call them conclusions, but I'm con- coming to some convictions. Mm. Uh, and I'll tell you one one route that has that I've gone down that's sort of uh, strengthened these convictions for me is reading uh, books uh, about by people and about people who have had so-called near-death experiences. Yes. Uh, and near-death experiences, from what I read, cut across all genders, religions, cultures, beliefs or non-beliefs or whatever. Uh, one of the more persuasive books on this topic is one I read earlier this winter by a Dutch uh, cardiologist named Pim van Lommel. And the book's published by Harper Collins, so it's a pretty reputable uh, publication. And, uh, in fact, he and his colleagues a few years before had published uh, an article on their research in The Lancet, which is a highly regarded uh, academic journal. But basically, as a cardiologist, he was having patients who would be technically dead on the operating table for five, ten minutes or whatever, and then would be revived. A number of them, if they felt safe with the uh, doctor or nurse at hand, would say, uh, I had an amazing experience and I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> you know, I yeah. went I went somewhere. And they talk about these traditional elements of going through a tunnel and coming out the other side and it's a beautiful realm and uh, there's familiar people there and there's a sense of beauty and uh, love and unconditional acceptance and they don't want to leave and they feel like it's home. <laughs> uh, yeah. they, but they come back, you know, because they're revived and they even sometimes have memories of, of the doctors nursing, uh, you know, working over them to try to revive them. They come back and then their lives tend to be changed typically in a positive way, not always, ever after, because they have this memory that they cannot, this memory of an experience that is more real than the sort of experiences they have here. Uh, and it, it, the having that experience in their, in their minds reduces their, their fear of death for the rest of their life here. Uh, it, uh, it changes their sense of time it increases their sense of the importance of little acts of love and of learning all that you possibly can uh, and of contributing to the welfare of nature and other people, all good stuff, you know, and that sort of makes me think, well, if there's something to those experiences that people report and the people report having been transformed by, maybe that are, is, is a, are, are hints for us as to what the dying process might be, not a, Trend, not a termination, but a transition, mm, not a dead end yeah. in a doorway. Uh, and I know it's it's unpopular and uh, you know sounds spooky. To, and I come from a from a you know a, you know a, a professional religious background, which I haven't been practicing that as a minister for thirty plus years. So I'm not speaking out of my role as a minister. I'm just speaking out of my role as a human being who's been yeah. studying aging. And, uh, and, and my, my, you know, my, when I was with my dad, the final hours of his life, there were some unusual things that happened that, that caused me to think uh, in ways that I hadn't thought before. So, mm. so I, 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 don't want, I don't want to shout this from the rooftops, but I do think that older adults might be more open than we think to seeing the aging process as, a, as an adventure forward into uncharted territory uh, that, you know, if we can... There's this one. There's one woman who was a part of my parish years ago, uh, and after I left to do other things, she developed cancer, and was with one of her friends in the final hours or days of her life, uh, and she knew that she was dying of cancer, and she said to her friend, she says, "You know what? This is painful and un- uncomfortable, so, but on one level, I'm really excited." Hmm. And uh, I don't take that as proof of anything, but I just. I just say suggest that this vision of aging as an adventure uh, might actually, you know, resonate with more people than we think. This aging is typically oh, yeah. viewed as a tragedy. You know, it's a downward slide towards disease, decrepitude, and death. End of story. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think the universe uh, is much, much vaster and more uh, multi-layered and mysterious than we give it credit for. Uh, even, yeah. You know, so you, we watch the the web telescope going out there and bringing us new images that are that are inviting us to rethink fundamental theories about the Big Bang and this and that and so forth. And uh, I just, I, my, my it's fascinating. Yeah, my my main reading these days is science and spirituality. Mm. That's my go to. 
uh, topic area, uh, you know, when I have uh, time at the end of the day, because that just, it just, it, it, it fascinates me. It restores my sense of wonder. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm curious from your perspective, because I, you, how you reconciled religion and spirituality, or maybe you didn't have to reconcile because your father was a Baptist minister with the United Church for 50 years, yet you say he still remained true to his deep fundamental roots roots from his Baptist childhood. And you, of course, were influenced, I assume you said, by the readings of passages that prophesied the end of the world. And you have you had become entrenched in fundamentalism when you went to Harvard College very early on. Yeah. And you say that you've now arrived at a more broad-minded perspective. And I'm curious, how did you break free of the fundamental teachings, or maybe they're still there in some way, but did, did, have you reconciled religion with spirituality, you having been a pastor yourself? How, how does that sit with you? Well, that's a great question. Uh, there's another whole hour of... of <laughs> <laughs> Can you give us the, uh, in a nutshell? <laughs> yeah. well, I, I, do, I, do, I do gently distinguish between the terms religion and spirituality. Uh, and how so? What, what is the difference to well, you? Well, for me, religion... Is a, is a more formal sort of structure of beliefs and traditions and rituals and so forth uh, that are presumably uh, at the service of helping us develop our spiritual lives. But the, my experience, there are a lot of people who are really quite spiritual who don't adhere to or identify with one particular or indeed even any religion, mm. capital R. And that is okay by me. Maybe at one time in my fundamentalist phase, I felt duty bound to convert people on the spot to my particular uh, relative, I think at the time, relatively narrow sort of uh, religious framework. But I think aging itself, regardless of our religious uh, background or not, is a broadening experience. Uh, and, uh, you know, you know, you go through stuff and your, your mind and your heart are stretched for better, or for worse. You, at 80 years old, you're just not the same person that you were at eight. You're the same person, yes, on some technical level, but, but your worldview has been stretched and expanded in multiple ways. And it seems to me that as we get older, um, that can happen to, to, to us in terms of a religious beliefs. Actually, there is a sense in which I find myself become, coming full circle, too. Uh, yes, the, some of the strong, capital F fundamentalist beliefs that I was so tied to in my late teens and early 20s, I, I've tried to get out of my system. I've needed to, actually. But I find also, though, that, uh, uh, you know, a, a line from an old hymn will suddenly come back to me. And mm -hmm. to, to the point where I want to go to the hymn book that I still have on my shelf and, and read the rest of the verses and realize that that's a lovely piece of poem that some old hymn writer set to music. And although maybe there's some aspects of the theology that I, yeah, I'm not so sure I go along with that, but the spirit of the, of the song or the hymn speaks to me. Um, and um, uh, so that's something that I, I want to think about more is how um, it, the aging process. I mean, there was a research that was done with elderly nuns, Catholic nuns, and they, they were being interviewed about their life, their faith, their spirituality and so forth. A number of them, said, yes, I'm still a Catholic, you know, always will be. A, I was born, bred, always will be a Catholic. And, uh, you know, I live my life in the service of the church as a nun. But I kind of hang loose to some of that stuff, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they hold on to what they realize is for them the essential, you know, love yeah. uh, and, and, and growth and learning and caring. So, uh, so that, that kind of journey, uh, you know, to, to go into whatever religion that you've been brought up in and pull from it, you know, th that which is kind of permanent and eternal and that which is negotiable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I just find it always a fascinating journey. Um, you know, so many of us have were, had our early lives brought up in religion and uh, I was raised a Catholic and have kind of transformed through that. You know, I think I'll always consider myself a Catholic. It's strange how things are a part of our, our identity, yeah. um, but have broadened my my mind somewhat and very interested in spirituality and spend a lot of time doing that inward process. And probably a lot of the, what you call the 13 R's of later life. And, you know, I'm probably already doing it now, the review, reflection, reasoning, remembering, all these things that you go through. Um, 
just always examining um, a life. What, what is it I truly believe? What is it I want from my life? What have I learned? How can I pass that on? So yeah. as you said, aging is intrinsically a spiritual journey. It, it's a fascinating one. Yeah, and I see spirituality as an intrinsically narrative process in the sense that spirituality could be broadly defined as the human need to make meaning. Uh, mm. And that need to make meaning does intensify, you know, throughout our lives, or at least in certain periods of our lives. Um, and uh, religions are organized structures for of, of meaning. They provide us with a ready-made story, shall we say, of the universe, who we are within it, where we come from, why we're here, where we're going, what's right, what's wrong. And um, but then as we get older, I mean, a dear friend of mine is a Muslim. And uh, he and I have some of the most fantastic, wonderful conversations. He's not threatened by my, you know, background in Christianity. And I'm not threatened by his his uh, background in uh, in Islam. That's just, I mean, we were brought up in different countries and cultures. But we have a common ground in terms of, of the things that we can discuss and, and the, the sense that, you know, uh, there's something and not nothing. And we're here for a reason and a purpose. And if we just open ourselves that that uh, that higher power, whatever we name it, uh, will probably be there for us to to, to guide us through the journey. Mm. Well, I think that's a great message to end on. I, I think we could chat all day about these topics. And uh, I've really enjoyed having this conversation. Is there anything that you want to say that I haven't asked you about? I don't think so, Dana. You've uh, you've got, asked some fantastic questions, and that's a that's a mark of your skills as a narrative carer is that you ask mm. good questions you ask soulful open-ended questions uh and sometimes when we are in conversation with each other we we ask practical factual questions which can be great but they can also shut things down as opposed to open things out so well, thank you. Well, I, I've enjoyed having this conversation. I appreciate you sharing your wisdom and making time for me in your schedule. So um, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Great to chat. That was such a great conversation. If you loved it too, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please go to iTunes to rate and review this podcast. And if you want to continue the conversation, connect with Soul Sister Conversations on the Facebook and Instagram pages. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Dana Lloyd Leadership, on Twitter at CoachDana underscore Lloyd, and of course on LinkedIn. See you next week.